Welcome to the Longevity Acceleration Podcast, where we talk to visionary thinkers in longevity about their mental models and roadmaps to solve aging. We're your hosts, Nathan Chang and Mark Hamalainen, co-directors of the Longevity Biotech Fellowship. Hi, I'm Nathan Chang. And I'm Mark Hamalainen. And this is the Longevity Acceleration Podcast. So we started this podcast because we're building a technical roadmap to solve aging, and we'll be interviewing uh, experts in a wide range of fields in order to build that, and we wanted to share those conversations with you. There'll be long-form, deep dives into the technicals on the research and technology necessary to solve aging entirely. We're not the only longevity podcast, and we're definitely not the first, Uh, but the term longevity has come to mean so many different things that it can be it can sort of mean almost anything. So what do we mean by solving aging? We're not talking about squaring the mortality curve. We're not talking about health span. We're not talking about supplements, diets, or drug repurposing. We're talking about developing advanced technologies to achieve unlimited length of healthy lifespan available to anybody who wants it. Our view is that no amount of aging is good and that the more healthy years science can give us, the better and that humanity should be prioritizing research and technology paths to solve aging. So what types of technology and research are we talking about? Uh, Things like whole body genetic software updates, that means solving the gene delivery problem, Uh, growing non-sentient clones for replacement parts, whether it be organs or entire bodies, gradual brain replacement, um, reversible cryopreservation, as well as tools that accelerate the rate of progress, such as artificial intelligence and automation. And, and to be clear, we're in favor of practicing things like health optimization, longevity optimization, um, and uh, in the here and now. Also, near-term technologies like pharmacology. But uh, ultimately, we think those sort of things can only buy us a small amount of extra time. They're not going to be the actual solutions for solving aging. And uh, they shouldn't be the bulk of our efforts. Yeah, so now we should probably introduce ourselves a little bit. Uh, why, why are you listening to us? Uh, I'll go ahead and start. Again, my name is Mark Hemelainen. I got into longevity, interested in longevity in the 90s, actually, as a uh, teenager reading a particular science fiction series called The Mars Trilogy. It was a story about people terraforming Mars It took place over 250 years, and some of the original main characters from the beginning of the story were still alive to see the completion of the project, and that was really inspiring to me. It was the world that I wanted to live in, and the characters in that book were role models for me. They were scientists and engineers, and they built the technology both to terraform Mars and to extend human lifespan. So I started studying gerontology, getting my hands on all the textbooks, journals available, and at the time it was pretty discouraging. The state of understanding of aging was quite primitive. It really wasn't clear um, whether this was something that would be feasible on any reasonable time scale. But I wasn't deterred. I decided it's not problem's not going to solve itself. People need to work on it. Went into academia and quickly ran into something that many of you would have heard of, which is the reproducibility crisis. I spent two years trying to reproduce the results of a predecessor during my PhD, only to find that none of those results were reproducible. Um, 
And after that experience, I realized that if this is the way we do research, we're definitely not going to solve this problem in my lifetime. I would call that sort of artisanal science, hypothesis-driven, manual for the purposes of generating publications. Um, so I dropped out of my PhD and I moved to California and focused on startups to do technology development, to do research faster and more reliably. I was uh, uh, the first employee at Synthago and the director of science there, which does genome engineering as a service, uh, fully automated in the background. It was a service that allows researchers to make faster progress because they don't have to know how to do and optimize all of those methods. They can just get any cells they want with any modifications that they want. But I saw that there was a growing interest in longevity, and yet the pace of progress was still extremely slow. Uh, when I got interested in the field, there were zero aging therapeutics, aging interventions. Um, and 15 years later, um, when I was at Synthago and getting ready for, to think about my next project, there were still zero aging therapies. And even today, there are still zero aging therapies. So I realized that we really need to grow this movement. It, it can't just be a niche. It needs to be a priority. Um, and so I started a nonprofit that was called Less Death and ran an event called Longevity Summer Camp. The idea there was to reproduce an experience I had had early in my career which was going to one of the early SENS conferences and meeting a bunch of people that were like-minded about wanting to do something about aging. And they became my friends, my coworkers, my collaborators, my co-founders. Um, and I wanted to reproduce that experience for as many people as possible. And I invited Nathan Schenk to it because Nathan was running uh, another program, which was an online program called ODLB that was having quite a bit of success. And so I wanted his help to make sure that my program was a success. And Nathan, maybe you should now tell your tell the audience how you ended up in longevity and how you ended up working with me. Yeah, sure. Uh, so my my story is a little bit convoluted and uh, a little bit uh, different. But um, yeah, I came into the longevity space um, sort of late in life. I started off. Uh, do in physics actually, and uh, I I didn't, I didn't like biology. Um, when I growing up in high school, I didn't even take biology as a specialization because I thought it was so boring. I was more interested in physics, and uh, yeah, I was doing a, a PhD in physics at the University of Toronto. I got uh, two years into my PhD and had this like very sudden existential crisis uh, where I just had this you know epiphany that. Um, that I was going to die and that this was a big problem and not just myself, but, but, uh, you know, everyone that I loved and, and, and so forth. And, um, yeah, it was uh, a real wake up call for me to think about like, what, what am I doing with my life? Like what is actually important to be working on? And, uh, it, it got to the point where, um, you know, I just I could, I couldn't handle this, uh, this existential pressure, this, uh, this, um, you know, sort of, uh, this thing hanging over my head and, uh, I had to do something. So I ended up quitting, uh, dropping out of my PhD. And um, uh, a long time sort of passed in between, uh, you know, uh, my PhD and trying to figure out what I, I wanted to do. But 
shortly after I dropped out of my PhD, I remember stumbling across um, uh, <laughs> a YouTube video of uh, Ray, uh, Ray Kurzweil documentary. And in that documentary, he was, you know, trying to do all these sort of things to extend uh, his lifespan. And uh, that led me down like uh, the rabbit hole to find other people like uh, Aubrey Gray, obviously. And that, that got me sort of introduced to this idea that we can actually do something about aging. But uh, at that time, I didn't have a biology background at all. I knew nothing about biology. So um, I didn't think I could really uh, have an impact on the space. So I was just basically waiting for hoping that other people would figure this out and, you know, just kind of like continue with my life. But, um, you know, fast forward a couple of years, uh, it became just more and more, I, I became just more and more interested in the space and trying to figure out what was going on. And um, I think it was around uh, maybe 2019, 2018, around that time, I remember uh, watching this uh, YouTube, video, YouTube video of Laura Deming. Basically, she was saying that, you know, the biggest bottleneck in the space um, in longevity was that there, were, there wasn't enough founders. And I guess uh, something just like got me, I don't know, woke, woke something up in my mind that I, I should actually get involved and, and do something about this problem. And if, if you know, uh, lack of founders was the biggest problem, then maybe I should try and start a company. So um, I, uh, you know, tried to learn as much biology on my own and in the process wanted to learn as much about aging biology and the longevity industry. So I started a newsletter, the longevity market cap newsletter. And then that sort of just like following my curiosity about, you know, uh, how to build companies in the space and just learning more about the industry. I ended up um, starting a podcast, the longevity biotech show, and then building all these other resources like a jobs board and, and uh, industry database at longevity list. And uh, yeah, essentially I, I was just building all these resources and sort of, um, yeah, it, also doing uh, sort of some community building around the podcast. And um, that sort of took off. And at, at some point I, I decided that, um, I had this realization that maybe instead of just like starting my own one company in the space uh, in longevity, uh, maybe I could, you know, help, I don't know, hundreds of people start companies in the space or get involved in some sort of way. And that could be like a higher leverage way to, to push things forward. And then, um, you know, um, you know, one thing linked to another, I got connected to uh, Eric Tornberg at, um, he was one of the co-founders of uh, OnDeck. And um, yeah, they, uh, we, ended up working together. I was hired there to, to, uh, to build the Longevity Biotech uh, Fellowship on deck, the ODLB. And uh, we did two cohorts there. Basically, you know, it was an online program trying to increase the number of people uh, working on longevity by creating this community, connecting people together. And um, yeah, so that was really cool. And uh, did that for about a year and a half. Uh, two cohorts, 200 plus people went through that program. And uh, yeah, and on the side, I uh, during that time, I also got involved in venture capital. So um, I co-founded uh, a firm called HealthSpan Capital. Uh, and uh, yeah, we've been operational for two years, investing in uh, early stage longevity biotech companies. And so far, we've invested in uh, roughly 28 companies now. So uh, yeah, so it's been really cool um, getting involved in this space. Um, yeah, and then I don't know, Mark, if you wanted to discuss, kind of like talk about uh, <laughs> the merge, I guess. Yeah, so I ran Longevity Summer Camp, which Nathan attended, and ODLB was not planning to continue and do another a third cohort. Um, they were, I think, refocusing on more traditional just tech rather than biotech, and Nathan got permission to 
spin ODLB out as a nonprofit. And I already had a nonprofit, so we just merged our efforts together. I think that was a big improvement for both communities because uh, I had specialized in the in-real-life interactions and the sort of intensive retreat-style onboarding. And Nathan's program was uh, an online program, which was more persistent as a community uh, to support people in in changing careers or accelerating careers or starting companies. We just decided to rent a venue without really much of a plan, and but that forced us to come up with a plan and run a cohort, and that was LBF1 in January of 2022. And we've done two more cohorts since then, the most recent one in Sweden uh, this past January. And yeah, what we're trying to do is help people enter this field and have the most impactful career they can, whether they're an entrepreneur, an engineer, a scientist, an investor. Uh, We have every type of person in our community. There's one thing I I also wanted to add to that, which is, you know, just to really emphasize this idea of building a community of mission-aligned people, people who actually share the same ultimate goal. And for us at LBF, this is solving aging completely. And, uh, you know, we're, we're quite different from other, let's say, longevity organizations in, in, that, in that sense. Um, and uh, if you're, and it's our superpower, I think, because if you're thinking about getting involved, you know, dedicating a large amount of your time, your career, your life to some sort of goal, you know, you're going to build a company or join a company or or dedicate your career to something, you better make sure that the people that you're going to be working with also share that same goal, right? And as the only community of builders who are, you know, hyper-aligned on this goal of solving aging completely, um, you know, that makes us stand out. And uh, I think that's really important that we have this kind of community. And I guess one of the questions that we have to answer for people that come through our programs is what should they work on? So... That's why we started building this technical roadmap. It was an actually an interesting story behind the initiation of this project. Uh, we were attending uh, some longevity conferences last year, and one of our members who was new to the biotech space uh, came to the conferences with us. And you, you maybe just kind of, if you've been in the space for a long time, you stop noticing certain things. But But he pointed out that while there was a lot of people giving, you know, incremental updates on their particular research topic or technology that they were working on, nobody presented an overview, a coherent plan of how to get from where we are today to where we want to be, this future where people don't have to age anymore. Um, it was all focused on just the next steps and people trying to fundraise for their particular projects. And so... We were thinking, yeah, how should people decide what to work on? We had our opinions, um, but we also we surveyed 400 professionals from the field on what the bottlenecks to progress are and what the solutions might be. So in doing research to start building this roadmap, we developed certain uh, criteria for what would be included. And the main one is that... Um, the research or technology path has to, in its mature form, have the potential to extend lifespan indefinitely. 
Um, there's a lot of people working on buying time with methods that we know intrinsically can't achieve that goal. Um, and it's good to buy time, but buy time for what? And so uh, we are focused on things that could solve aging entirely. And we came up with another criteria or categorization system, which is whether the strategy requires you to understand aging or not. So when you're talking about traditional pharma and biotech, that requires a certain level of understanding of aging. Uh, sometimes it can be just empirical where you're just doing screens and you don't necessarily always understand the details, but that traditional approach um, runs into limitations. Um, if we really wanted to have indefinite lifespans, we would need engineering control of biology. Uh, and so one of the uh, categories that we came up with is advanced bioengineering. And this is basically the principle that it doesn't violate any law of physics for an organism to have an indefinite lifespan. We already know that across nature, there's huge variability in lifespan. It's a malleable trait. Uh, natural selection produces uh, extreme longevity under certain conditions. We live as long as we do because of the equilibrium between extrinsic and intrinsic causes of death, and that natural selection is only acting on things that happen before you would die of something else. And that equilibrium shifts over time uh, due to the environment changing and the traits uh, of species uh, evolving. But if you had engineering control, you could, instead of just waiting for evolution to extend lifespan, you could actually just understand how aging works by collecting a lot of data and building models and then develop tools to design, deliver, and make edits to biology. In principle, this is possible. Doesn't mean that it's easy. And we'll dive a lot deeper into uh, the difficulties and the challenges uh, in future episodes uh, with this approach. Um, but it turns out there's actually other approaches to uh, solving aging that don't necessarily require you to understand aging entirely. And I'll let Nathan uh, cover those. Yeah, so just high level, um, the other two approaches, in addition to bioengineering, that we've identified as potential solutions to aging um, are one, uh, replacement. So this would include whole body replacement and progressive brain replacement. And uh, number two would be biostasis, which technically speaking is not an actual solution for aging. It's more of a stopgap solution, so uh, an interim solution that uh, puts biological aging or, or deterioration of your tissues and so forth uh, on indefinite pause, uh, which would buy you enough time potentially to, to uh, wait for technologies to be developed to solve aging completely or um, your particular cause of death. So those are the two um, other strategies that we identified in our roadmap. And this is uh, one thing to also note is these are the strategies that we've identified today 
Um, we're leaving the door open, obviously, in the future when, and, and uh, we anticipate that we'll be updating this, uh, the LBF technical roadmap as time goes by to include, you know, promising new technologies and breakthroughs that could, uh, could also potentially get us to indefinite lifespan. But given our current understanding of uh, the field and, and where we stand today in terms of technology and science, this is, these are kind of like the three main strategies that, that we are going with. So going into a little bit more detail about replacement first. Uh, so replacement is a strategy whereby you don't need to understand all the complex modifications and mechanisms of aging at you know the cellular molecular levels. You just essentially replace old tissues, parts, organs, entire bodies with young, uh, ideally genetically identical versions of uh, of your tissues, organs, body. It really takes two forms, um, two steps in, in our estimation and our roadmap. So one, as I mentioned before, is whole body replacement. And the second is, uh, is progressive brain replacement. And there, there are people working on both parts of the strategy. So maybe I'll just briefly talk about the first part, whole body replacement. So basically what you would do is create um, a clone um, of yourself, but a non-sentient clone. And there's a proof of concept that this could be done because in, in nature, this already happens. There's a, a congenital birth defect condition called hydra anencephaly, where uh, a fetus is born without uh, a neocortex or parts of the forebrain. And um, some of these fetuses, um, you know, when they're born, they're non-sentient. But uh, if they're left on life support, uh, their bodies can develop uh, normally up until there's been cases where they can develop past 20, 30 years. And uh, it's essentially, yeah, uh, a young body without the part of the brain that uh, gives rise to consciousness. So it's non-sentient. Now, so if we can do this uh, by genetically modifying the embryo so it, it doesn't develop, um, you know, the conscious forming parts of the brain, then you could see how, in theory, this isn't somewhat elegant solution for bypassing all the complexity of aging that goes on in all your tissues, cells, organs in the body. And then what you would do is, um, you know, uh, <laughs> to, to get that body would be to do a, a head transplant. Um, so that's another part of the, the strategy. And uh, th this also has a proof of concept. Um, in 1971, Robert White, a pi pioneer in transplantology, uh, did these uh, head transplant experiments in monkeys. And um, even though, uh, you know, he was able to do these transplants uh, on monkeys that were not genetically identical, um, they would still survive for a couple days. They still had, um, you know, uh, they could restore certain function, like the, the, the monkeys could chew and their eyes could move and so forth. Um, but they died eventually because they were not genetically identical. There would be uh, an immune response. But in the case of a genetically identical clone, you wouldn't have this problem. So that sort of takes care of the aging situation in the body. But then what do you do for the brain? Um, so there's a, a researcher um, by the name of Jean Hebert at uh, Albert Einstein College of Medicine who uh, is working on a strategy for replacement for the brain. And basically uh, what you would do is you would progressively replace 
the brain in a gradual manner, sort of like in the ship of Theseus, by engineering um, graphs of that resemble uh, young neocortex and uh, engraft these, put them into the into the brain. And because the brain has a certain amount of plasticity, you know, uh, functions in the brain can migrate to these new graphs. Um, so that's sort of the strategy for progressive brain replacement. And there are people working on that. Yeah. And uh, just to be clear, we're not trying to sell hopium here. There are major science challenges, even within this replacement strategy that, that in principle, replacing old parts with young parts sounds great, but obviously you have to reconnect nerves. Your uh, neural graphs have to form the right connections with the rest of the brain. Um, you have to be able to produce all of the different cell types necessary to build those graphs. Um, and you have to be able to uh, grow these bodies in a way that is, um, that they are healthy. Um, so we'll be diving much deeper into all of the technical objectives and challenges, uh, on, a, on future episodes. That's, that's kind of the point of this podcast. So biostasis, the, the core strategy here is to try to put biological deterioration, um, on indefinite pause. So you would do this um, most likely with uh, one of two strategies. One, uh, either cryopreservation, so bringing uh, tissues, bodies, organs, down to cryogenic temperatures, uh, like liquid nitrogen temperatures, minus 200 degrees Celsius around there. Um, or uh, you could also do this through chemical fixation, um, so by cross-linking all the biomolecules and proteins in the body with uh, an appropriate uh, chemical fixative. Now, um, you know, this doesn't actually solve aging, as we've said before. It just puts uh, biological time on, uh, on pause for potentially uh, almost indefinitely, let's say. And uh, in that time, you would basically wait for humanity to develop the necessary technologies to solve aging, but also to figure out um, how to revive uh, these preserved bodies and potentially repair some of the damage that uh, has uh, accumulated or has um, you know, occurred in the process of uh, the preservation or, or revival uh, process. So, um, you know, this is also by no means a slam dunk. There's tons of technical risks and sometimes uh, some scientific unknowns and, and so forth. Um, but, uh, you know, when faced with the alternatives um, to preservation of the body, uh, you know, most people today will either bury um, someone who has died or they will uh, cremate them. Um, so compared to those two, uh, yeah, preservation seems like uh, a more rational bet. There's actually been some pretty amazing breakthroughs in crop preservation recently, despite a chronically low level of funding. People have used a technique called nano-warming, uh, where that facilitated the freezing and thawing of a, a freezing to cryogenic temperatures and thawing of a rat kidney, which was then transplanted back into the rat and functioned. Um, 
and people have frozen uh, nematode worms and then revived them and shown that they um, not only functioned but also retained memory from training that they had received before the freezing. And so those are obviously not humans. There are, uh, these are small examples. But the problem of cryo is actually a problem of scale-up, right? Which is different than trying to solve aging through bioengineering. Um, scale-up is sort of an engineering problem um, versus uh, bioengineering where you have huge number of open science questions, unknown. You don't even know how many unknown unknowns there are. Um, and so that's why we think that cryopreservation and other forms of biostasis are very promising areas and will be um, an important uh, pillar of the roadmap that we're building. Yeah, and another note is, you know, in terms of uh, interest from the longevity space, there's definitely uh, a trend, let's say, of people becoming more interested in uh, working on uh, biostasis. And... Um, and replacement as well. And replacement, that's for sure, yeah. Um, so, for instance, uh, Laura Deming uh, recently started a company in looking at cryopreservation, raised $40 million. Uh, the company's called The Rents Bio. And uh, Joao Pedro de Magalash, also a really well-known um, researcher, professor in uh, aging biology. At oh. Because at the end of the day, um, you don't want to wait till you're old and there has, you know, it's potentially there might not be any uh, life extending therapies at all um, available. And uh, you want to make sure that you have some sort of, let's say, backup solution, uh, if, that's the, if that's the case, some sort of insurance. Not to mention that we're all starting, uh, we're all currently at different stages of our life. Um, I mean, our roadmap when we were thinking about how to build it, one of the questions was, who is it for? Is it for people who are 30? Is it for people who are 10? Is it for people who are 70? Um, what you would prioritize would be very different depending on where you currently are and how much time you have left. And because we're coming from a philosophical perspective that uh, aging and death are bad things. Um, this isn't a philosophy podcast, but maybe the one thing I'll say on it is a quote from Andrew Steele, which is that aging and death are not the moral solution to any problem. Um, if, if you think that aging or death are, are the solution to a problem, maybe you just haven't spent enough time thinking about what could be a better solution to that problem. And so, yeah, for our roadmap, we're covering a wide range of approaches because some of them, um, like cryopreservation, might be the only plausible bet for somebody within their lifetime. Yeah. And uh, maybe I'll make one last uh, you know, <laughs> pitch for uh, biostasis, and that's just that... Um, you know, even if you could solve aging, let's say just through bioengineering or replacement, 
there are other forms of death, right, that have nothing to do with aging. It could be you just get into some sort of accident and you need some sort of emergency medical procedure to uh, put everything on pause before, you know, just to slow down uh, time, to give you more time to intervene. Um, so it just makes, uh, you know, even if we solve aging, I think people will still develop ways for um, preservation just for, you know, other kinds of um, causes of death or, or injuries or medical conditions. Another thing to discuss is, is there not already other plans out there? And we did do a survey. Um, there's a lot of plans that you, some of you might be familiar with, such as the uh, Foresight Technology Tree, Aubrey de Grey's SENS, slash the hallmarks of aging. Many people have written articles. Uh, there's Longevity Facts. Lifespan.io has a rejuvenation roadmap. Open Longevity has a research roadmap. We found that we couldn't just direct our members to them and say, here you go, there's the plan. Uh, because they, they were missing elements that we thought were really important. What we want to build in our plan is, again, focused on indefinite lifespan specifically. Uh, a lot of these other plans are more broad, and they, they sometimes are simply categorization systems for everything that people are doing. They don't really say what's important, what the uh, potential impact of different paths might be. They just include everything. Um, in other cases, they are specific, but then they're just p pushing a particular agenda of a particular person or organization rather than trying to be objective. Um, and then we wanted to be very um, sort of specific in terms of objectives and technical milestones, all the way down to levels of projects with time and cost estimates. And... That's, that's a heavy lift, but we think that's actually pretty important. And the reason is that if you want investment in the space, if you want talent to move into the space, you kind of need to have specifics on that level because otherwise it's hard for people to have confidence that they're choosing a path that is feasible. And back to the aspect of potential impact, you have to decide how to distribute the resources, right? Humanity has a limited amount of resources. We're currently not making longevity a major priority. Um, and so the resources are very limited. But even if you had a lot more resources, which we hope will be the case in the near future, you have to decide how to distribute them. And the plans that we saw didn't provide any logical system for differentiating between different strategies and how the how resources should be allocated and so that that to us was very important in how we design this plan and that's what uh, a lot of our conversations are going to be about in future episodes digging deeper into the rationale behind different strategies uh, one question that some people might ask is do we need a plan even to, to solve aging what do you think mark <laughs> yeah it's Actually, a hard question because um, we really can't predict the rate or even how progress will go in areas where there's open science questions. If you had asked people a year before CRISPR was discovered, what would, how would we would be doing gene therapy, 
they might they wouldn't have been able to tell you they would be we would be using RNA guided nucleases that were evolved as a bacterial uh, immune system against bacteriophages. Uh, science often happens in um, sort of uh, intermittent steps, um, often because of an unexpected uh, discovery or a new tool that was developed often as well. Um, right now, everybody's very interested in transcriptomics because we developed single-cell RNA sequencing. But if we had developed single-cell proteomics first, maybe everybody would be focused on that. Yeah, making a plan end-to-end um, -to, -end to solving aging is... Uh, the point isn't necessarily that you, you can possibly predict what that will look like, but that you do need to have some sort of way of making strategic decisions um, with the best information available and, and then distributing resources based on that. And when you look at the way that current resources are distributed, paths that are known to be in the best case scenario, very low impact on lifespan and health span are getting a lot of money right now, whereas other areas that we've been investigating, including replacement and biostasis, particularly reversible cryostasis, that are extremely promising in terms of the potential gains, get almost no money. And so we really wanted to, I think from a strategic perspective, that doesn't really make much sense. And it seems that often the case um, Sometimes the only reason is because people don't actually know about those areas of research. And so having a plan that provides an overview of all of the different things people are trying and why they're trying them, um, I think will help people make better decisions uh, as to where to allocate both talent and capital if they're optimizing for lifespan as their return on an investment. Yeah, I think it's it's both, you know, obviously giving an overview for uh, for people for where they should put their time, their like allocate ta talent and also capital, but even just like convincing people that there there that you can put capital and time into these sort of things uh, without a concrete plan, it, it you know, it makes it very difficult for funders to believe that, you know, that there's an actual outcome here. If it's just only just a category of different research areas that people could, you know, fund, then this could be just like an endless black hole of money and time. And it's not clear that there's actually some, some way to actually solve this. And like, uh, maybe a good uh, example from the past is, you know, in 2002, around that time, uh, Elon Musk uh, got interested in figuring out what what, the, what was the plan to get to Mars, right? He literally was trying to find the plan to get to Mars, went to the NASA website and found that there was no plan. So then he had to create his own plan. And um, and by doing so, you know, this could actually, actually happen and he could sell this vision to talented people, right, to join SpaceX, but also uh, funders to, to invest in this. So you need some sort of concrete logical narrative of, you know, step one, step two, step three, how this is actually going to happen um, with some details. And I think that makes it much more attractive for, for people to get involved. Yeah, and we're excited to share this journey that we're going on 
with you. Building this roadmap is ambitious. It's going to be hard work. And we actually also want your help. We want your feedback. We want your recommendations on who we should talk to, on what might be missing. Speaking of uh, future episodes, coming soon, you'll be able to listen in on some of our conversations with uh, experts in the field. So for uh, our first episode, we've interviewed uh, Reason from Repair Biotechnologies, and he's also the author of Fight, uh, the Fight Aging blog, which we highly recommend everybody check out um, at fightaging.org. And then uh, our second podcast will be with uh, Alexander Fedenstev. He's a, a researcher on extracellular matrix aging. And then our third podcast episode will be with Jose Luis Rucon, who's head of theory at Retro Biosciences. And we're going to try to, um, you know, deconstruct their mental models um, for how they're trying to solve the problem of aging. From there, uh, we're going to continue talking with people on all aspects of the roadmap on those three topics that we discussed, advanced bioengineering, replacement, and biostasis. But we'll also be bringing in people from adjacent fields, uh, people who might not even be consider themselves uh, longevity researchers. For instance, they might be in synthetic biology or artificial intelligence and developing tools that are necessary or can accelerate the rate of progress. Right now, um, you can go to the Longevity Biotech Fellowship website and see uh, the current version of our roadmap. And in addition to that, we have a recommended reading list. Our goal here is to help the people that are serious about this, that want this to be their career. And there's no way around the fact that these are extremely difficult problems. And it does require a lot of learning, a lot of education, and a lot of accumulated experience if you're going to make significant contributions. If you don't currently work on these problems, but you'd like to, you can apply to the Longevity Biotech Fellowship. We run that. It's a nonprofit organization with a mission to help you have the most impactful career you can as a scientist, entrepreneur, investor, or even community organizer. So yeah, definitely check us out at uh, longbiofellowship.org and subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. And we'll, we'll see you soon.